All right, welcome back. We are in a series in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, written by John Mark. And likely from a lot of material he got from his friendship and relationship with Peter. So a lot of firsthand knowledge from Peter in the book of Mark. Peter was kind of a, an interesting guy. In some ways, um, some of us men who are super competitive um, and speak without thinking and are emotional, we get Peter because that's kind of the, that's the guy he was. Uh, I've always been really competitive. I, I love sports. Um, in fact, Rob Swanson over there, if anybody wants to take us two on two, we're still undefeated, I think, in my mind, from, from high school. In my mind, we're still undefeated as a two-on-two pair. I just, I just loved basketball. What I found is when I was doing City League or Church League or anything like that, you'd never believe the games where I scored the most points and had the best stats. They were always the games when I was either sick or injured. It was the weirdest thing, and for, forever I couldn't figure it out. Because <laughs> I'd kind of go into the game thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm just getting over pneumonia. I almost died. I'm not going to do very well. And all of a sudden I've scored 32 points and, and pulled down rebounds, and I'm, I'm hitting all my passes, and I'm getting the rebounds. <laughs> and I'm like, why in the world did I play so well today? I, I expected myself to do practically nothing. Or just come off a sprained ankle and finally get clearance to be able to play. And, and I'm just throwing down buckets like, like it was nothing. What I came to realize as I grew older was it was, I'm really bad at trying way too hard. I, I mean, I get myself into that situation and I'm like, i got to score all the points. i got to lead this team. I've got to be the epic MVP of the year. I've got to win. And when I go into a game like that, whether it's basketball or even ping pong, volleyball, whatever it is, when I go in with this urgency to win and to not screw up and to be the best, I fall on my face because I'm just trying too dang hard. When I relax, enjoy the game, enjoy my teammates, don't yell at the refs. I play way better, and I enjoy myself, and I actually build relationships instead of tearing them down. Ask Dave Schaefer, if you ever want to be against me in volleyball, you don't, because sometimes I'm a jerk, and all of a sudden I'm fighting with this man I love so very much over whether the ball was in or out. This is exactly what we find the Pharisees doing in Mark chapter 2 this week. The Pharisees are trying so hard they have got themselves focused, laser beam focused on how are we going to be the best? And how are we going to make sure that we never screw up? And how are we going to be the religious elites? So much so that they miss out on a relationship with the one who made the rules. They are so worried about keeping the rules and keeping them perfectly, they miss out on the relationship today we're going to learn from their poor example and from the disciples in Jesus' good example that we should always choose a relationship over rules. Not that rules are bad per se, but relationship with Jesus Christ, the rule giver, is how we can learn to please him and have a good time doing it instead of the burden of feeling like you've got 
to win. So let's turn in our Bibles, if we would. I'll have the text on the screen as well so you can follow along. Let's see what's going on with Jesus and his disciples this week. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So as uh, Jesus was preaching and teaching throughout uh, the countryside, Capernaum was kind of one of the main areas that he was, but near the Sea of Galilee, he would go from place to place. He would go to the local synagogue and he would teach. But there's a lot of traveling. There's a lot of being with the people, and, and Mark likes to show that in his story and his telling of the life of Jesus. So we see Jesus going from place to place. We don't know how far he went or, or how far he was traveling that day, but it happened to be a Sabbath day. And part of the Ten Commandments, if, if you know your Ten Commandments, is honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Make sure that you keep a, a Sabbath, a, a seventh day, God himself in creation, when he created the world, he created it in six days, and on the seventh he rested. Now, was God the omnipotent and all-powerful tired? No, he wasn't. He was God. He doesn't get tired. However, he knew what his creation would need. He knew that for you and I, we need a day of rest. So even when he gave the Ten Commandments, he said, I want you to build into your week a day for rest where you don't work, where you focus on me, where you focus on resting and recuperating, where you get your priorities in check again so that you can go back to work and be the most productive. Because God is a God that actually loves work. The doctrine of work is one of those things that uh, if you're a person that loves your job, loves your occupation, loves those tasks and getting them done, you would love to do a study on the doctrine of work because the Bible's all about it. God's all about it. But he's also about rest. He's also about priorities. So as they're going from place to place on this day that was to be a day of rest, the Sabbath, they ended up taking and plucking some of the heads of grain. And uh, they would pluck them with their hand, and, and they would probably rub them or chew on them to get kind of the kernel. To me, it, it kind of is like a sunflower seed situation. Imagine you're really hungry, and you don't really have anything to eat, but somebody's like, I got a, I got a whole bag of sunflower seeds. I mean, I'd be all about that. Like, yeah, give me a handful. And I'll chew on them and spit out the, 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 the husk, or I'll, I'll break them and I'll eat them. It's a lot of work to get to that tiny little kernel, but it sure tastes good. And, and again, it, it's just salty and it's wonderful. This, this is probably the kind of situation that they had. All they could get was, was some grain, but they are hungry enough and they had a need enough that, that at least that could give them some nourishment. Now, you might think, well, wait a second, whose field of grain is this? And you'd be right to think that because it, it doesn't appear to be their field of grain. So was Jesus stealing? And his disciples stealing from somebody just going through? I mean, if somebody came into my yard and started picking from my apple trees, I'd be like, hello, do I know you? Those are my apples. Well, God in his law actually made a provision for neediness, for people who didn't have enough or just had an immediate need that you could actually pluck 
from your neighbor's field. You couldn't uh, reap. So the way it reads is, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not sickle or put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. That's um, Deuteronomy 23. So there was provision for us to be able to uh, feed ourselves and not go hungry. But it's not like I could go out there with my, you know, weed whacker and just, I'm taking all this grain, it's mine, and then sell it on a profit. It, it wasn't that kind of a thing. So what they were doing was actually perfectly legal and acceptable in their society. So the protest seems to be that the Pharisees look at what they're doing and they say, that's work on the Sabbath to, to, to pluck a head of grain and to separate it and, and to eat it. Boy, you sure look like you're working up a sweat there, guys. That's a lot of work. And we don't work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees had these oral traditions and these oral traditions were lengthy. Hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of rules just to describe how to make sure we keep the Sabbath holy. They were really focused on that basketball game. They really wanted to make sure that they got everything right. And they were the MVP and they didn't break any rules. They were really wanting. So there was hundreds and hundreds of ways that the Pharisees interpreted the one single command, keep the Sabbath day, don't work on it. You could just imagine them sitting around in their, you know, flowing white robes and, and drinking and sipping on wine and, and having these conversations where they're patting themselves on the back. Well, I imagine that uh, walking on a journey too far, that would be work, right? Yes, yes. Good point, Sybil. Yes. Well, I imagine that... Possibly, if I were to walk 1,999 steps, that's, that's not work, but the 2,000th step. Oh, yes, that is work. Yes, pip-pip, jolly hole, write that down, someone. I mean, that's a real rule. That's a real one. 2,000 steps on your journey on the Sabbath, that's work. 1,999, not work. So you're in the clear. So you imagine again these people walking. Oh, 1,122, 1,123, 1,100. They're counting their steps up to 1999. That's a lot of counting. And it's silly. So focused on the rules. And again, these are rules they made up. They said you can't pluck grain. God didn't say you can't pluck grain. We have to remember that Jesus Christ, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So Jesus Christ himself was perfect in the law because we could not be. That's why we need Jesus. So Jesus is not breaking a law, even though they say, why are you doing what is not lawful? Jesus should just make fun of them. Or he sh I don't know what he should do. Here's what he does because he's awesome. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. 
Okay, Jesus doesn't argue with them. Uh, he doesn't just kind of give opinions. He doesn't just say, well, your interpretation is psycho, even though it was. He goes to Scripture, and he says, all right, let's, let's talk from a scriptural standpoint, because you guys, uh, you Pharisees, believe in a return to the Torah. Let's go back to the Torah. So he goes back to the story in 1 Samuel 21, which, honestly, it's, it's a little bit confusing to most people who study this story out, because what David does, well, he, let me give you the background. So before David was king, he had to flee from Saul, the, the king that was on the throne at the time, because David was God's chosen one to come, and Saul wasn't so stoked about giving up his throne. He wanted to kill David. So in a hurry, um, David kind of had to leave. He had to flee. He had to run. He had to hide. So he goes to this place on his journey. Uh, it's a place of worship, and he asks for some food. The, the, the priest says, um, I've only got the, the bread that was offered to the Lord. Um, it would be set out before the Lord, and then it would be replaced. So essentially it was weak old bread by the time uh, the priest would get to it. Um, what's odd in the story is, is David's actions aren't really above reproach. He lies to the priest about his reason for being there. Um, n- not really good start there. Uh He actually did do something against Mosaic law, David did, by eating the bread. There's an admission of guilt here that David has in the story that that Jesus really doesn't. So you go, why would Jesus use that story? I think it highlights a couple of different things. One is uh, the need that was there. The David and his men had need for bread. They needed it. And so sometimes uh, need circumvents letter of the law kind of a stuff. Now, we can't go too far with that. (laughs) We mustn't try to go too far with that, or now we're trying to figure out how we can break God's laws and God's rules and his standards, which is also a bad heart. Uh, trying Trying to build enough fence of safety and enough rules that we can add to God's rules to make sure we don't follow it, that's one bad side of things. It's a legalism kind of a problem. Um, saying, well, God's laws don't really apply to me and his rules don't apply to me because I've got a special situation. And and so I'm just going to kind of throw all of God's rules and standards and guidelines out. That's a whole nother ed. Uh, Antinomianism is a a word that's been called. That's another extreme that we don't want to go to. But what David does is never rebuked in the Bible. It's never called out. He doesn't uh, get judged by God for it or other priests or, or the priests or anything like that simply because of David's authority. He was the king elect and God had put him there and he had need. So what I believe Jesus is doing by using this kind of strange story is going back to the theme of this entire, I think it's been four sermons now, this entire section where Jesus begins to have conflict with the religious leaders, the conflict section of John Mark. We're at the very end of it now. And since the beginning, we've been looking at Jesus' authority. In so many ways, we've seen his authority, his authority over demons, his authority over nature, his authority in teaching, authority, authority, authority. And so in appealing to David's authority to do something that was outside the law, he's pointing out that he is the lawgiver. 
He's the rule giver. If anyone should understand how to interpret God's law, it would be me, Jesus says, because I am God, and I wrote the law with him. We are one. So the real thrust seems to be not only this need, but also the authority of Jesus Christ, which is kind of where he goes next. But I have a couple questions. These Pharisees, all right, what are they doing out there? I mean, they're not followers of Jesus, right? They're not like, hey, teach us. We, we can't wait to hear more of your teaching with authority. No, they, they don't like the guy. They don't trust the guy. They're trying to find the guy, something wrong with the guy, just so that they can, you know, really get after him. Did they prepare for the Sabbath? Did they have food? Because they weren't plucking heads of grain, so they probably prepared and had food with them that they do they offer to share it with Jesus and the disciples who are really hungry and needy? I just have questions, and I, I'd love to have some of these answered someday in heaven. All right, let's keep going, though. And he said to them, and this is huge, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's a pretty powerful concept. Because God instituted the Sabbath in order to bless and help mankind. He gave us this order to say, the seventh day you need to rest. And honestly, study after study show that when we do take a day off, that we're more productive the other six days. In fact, so much more productive those other six days that it would be far better to take a day off and work six days than it would be to work seven straight days. You get more done and you're healthier. You live longer. Your families thrive. This is really the God that we serve. He gives us rules, laws, guidelines, not because he hates us, not because he's a father that wants to keep us from having fun, but because he's a loving father. Let's think about God's law when it comes to sexuality. Now, those ones aren't very popular these days. Nobody wants to talk about them. Nobody wants to admit them. But the bottom line is God says, I want you to wait until you're married and save sex for one person for a lifetime. That's his standard. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. There was times when I was a teenager and I'm like, man, I hate this rule. I want to explore. I want to try things out. My friends are doing this and this. I'm seeing this and this on the television. And I feel like I'm missing out. It, it sounds like it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And I want to try it. It's going to feel good. These are all the thoughts of a teenager and a young person and a 30-something that's single. I get it. I understand. Because the reality is sex is a beautiful gift from God. Maybe the best gift he ever gave. I don't know, besides Jesus Christ. Maybe, like as far as like those types of things, it might be the best thing he gave us because it's so great. And it's something that we should be able to freely talk about and say, yes, it's cool. It's fun. But I'm telling you what, kids, it's going to be better for you. You're not going to deal with the heartbreak. You're not going to deal with potential diseases. You're not going to deal with potential unwanted pregnancies and then more of the heartbreak. (laughs) 
and then more of the heartbreak. When we have multiple partners, when we get involved sexually with somebody, we create a bond. And then if you break up with them, there's a part of you that just gets torn out. When we think about God's rules and his laws, like the Sabbath and keeping ourselves pure, there's so many of these things that when we're in the wrong frame of mind, we're like, God's trying to keep me from a good time and he's trying to hold me back. But he's not. He's a loving father that wants to protect you and nourish you. He wants you to have the best possible life. When we go to the extreme the Pharisees go to, though, where we say, man, I've got to build these fences around everything. I've got to protect myself. I've got to build a fortress so I make sure I don't mess up. So I'm going to have rule after rule after rule about how to keep the Sabbath so I don't break the Sabbath. We miss the point as well. We miss the point completely because now the Sabbath becomes a burden. Now it becomes this difficult thing that's almost impossible to keep, and I've got to watch myself and... It's not freeing. It's not restful. How restful is it to count my steps to 1,999? Not restful. That seems like a whole lot of work. And the Pharisees just didn't get it. They really didn't get it because of the second part there. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. They didn't get it because they didn't get the authority of Jesus Christ, the rule giver. The lawgiver, the one that gives good gifts even in his laws. In order to understand God's laws, in order to really want to do them and to enjoy the Christian life, the full joy-filled Christian life we can have, it has to take place in relationship with the one who's given the rule. You can only understand the law in the context of Jesus Christ. And he was standing right there with them, and they missed it. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Remember, he goes to the synagogue wherever he goes. So he does this again, it says. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, again, questions that I have in eternity that I'd love to ask God. Did this man just happen to be in the synagogue? Or did Pharisee Joe and Pharisee Jim make this plan? I I know a guy with a shriveled hand. Well, let's get him. Let's bring him in here. I mean, he's already plucked the grain. Let's really get him on this Sabbath. If he tries to heal somebody, oh, daddy, we got him. Uh, They're not above this kind of scheming. Regardless, here we are in the situation, and they watched Jesus, the text says. It's uh, in the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning it's it's like a hanging in suspense. Like they're on the edge of their seats. What's going to happen? Is he going to heal him? Is he going to heal him? Now, again, we've just gone through this whole controversy section. It's been about four sermons now. The very first thing Jesus did to create controversy was a healing on the Sabbath. And now we've got a bookend of it again, which gives us our our kind of uh, pericope or pericope, as I mispronounce it. Thank you. (laughs) So. They're watching him on the edge of their seat. They've seen him do it before. They're hoping he's going to do it again. They're in the synagogue, though. What do we do when we go to the synagogue? 
What do we do when we come to the church? Where's our focus? It's up. It's on him. It's funny. Their focus is technically in the right place because it's on Jesus. (laughs) And he's God. But it's also in the wrong place because they're watching Jesus to try to catch him and try to get him. What is going on with these guys? And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. A couple of things I really like about this scenario. One is it doesn't say this man came to Jesus for healing. It never says that in the entire text. Possibly he's a plant. Possibly he just happens to be here. Jesus is not scared of controversy. And Jesus is not scared of these religious leaders. He initiates this healing because it's the right thing to do. And he's not afraid of doing the right thing simply because he knows some people want to judge him for it. Love that. So he initiates and he asks them point blank before he does anything. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Very interesting question. It's lawful, obviously, to do good. I mean, that's what the Sabbath is for. But what are the Pharisees doing? Pharisees are the ones that are meaning harm today, hoping to catch Jesus today, eventually plotting to kill Jesus and destroy him. But then he goes to this crazy place, he says, to save life or to kill. And and if you were on the scene and it was just a guy with a shriveled hand, you would think, well, that escalated quickly. How did we get to killing people? Um, I didn't know we were there. But Jesus, again, who is God, knows the hearts of these men and what they're trying to do, which is actually to kill him. And in essence, Jesus will be saving this life, man's life in a physical way. And he's been healing and even forgiving sins in a spiritual way as well. But this man's life, his livelihood, his ability to worship and be accepted spiritually and societally is going to be saved because of what Jesus does. So his works versus the Pharisee's work, he, 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 he's using this irony here, John Mark and Jesus himself. He's trying to point out the contradiction that's going on. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus gets angry? Yeah, Jesus gets angry. Jesus is fully God, but he was also fully man. And he has the full range of emotion. He doesn't sin in his anger, though. Jesus gets angry when he sees just how hearted these guys are. No compassion. They just want to catch him and they want to destroy him. They don't even care about this poor man whose hand is crippled. Whether it happened in an accident or whether he'd been like that his whole life, they don't don't care about him. They just care about catching Jesus. And they missed it. They miss the relationships. They're so worried about rules. They missed relationships. 
Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And suddenly, for the first time in this story, this man has a choice. He has a part to play. This, this man who was either a, a pawn of the Pharisees in one way or the other, now we get to see him have a choice. Those with deformities don't often like attention being brought to them. I had buck teeth when I was a kid. And really, I got used to having my hand like this. I would, I would, I would want to hide my mouth from people because I got teased. And if anybody were to bring attention to it, I would be immediately embarrassed and sweaty and scared. I did not want anyone looking at my teeth. This man likely did not want anyone looking at his hand, much less when he's the center of attention in a crowded room. He could have shrunk back because of fear or shame. He could have shrunk back because he knew the Pharisees were also watching and he didn't know if he was going to get in trouble. But he placed his faith in Jesus Christ when he stretched it out. That was an act of faith. One uh, author put it this way. Once again, Mark describes faith without using the word. Faith is not a private wager, but a public risk that Jesus is worthy of trust when no other hope can be trusted. And he stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. What? <laughs> what? It, was, it had to be the most amazing moment for that man, for his faith in God. It was an amazing moment, and what happens? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel on how to destroy him. What could have been marvelous, being in the synagogue on the Sabbath where we're supposed to worship God, and you've got a massive reason to worship him right there in front of your eyes, something you've never seen in your life, something that's impossible by human standards, something that should be like, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. And they say, let's go get him. Let's get this guy. In fact, they plot with somebody called the Herodians. It's hard to know precisely who they were, but Herod, obviously, is one of the, the kings of that time. This is likely a political group that supports King Herod. And so these religious people are even using mercenaries, so to speak. They're willing to go really down a dirty, dark path to get Jesus. Instead of, again, associating with Jesus, who is God, uh, giving God praise for all of it, they go outside. And they leave where they should be and start doing things that they shouldn't do. Jesus restores, the Pharisees destroy. Jesus brings newness of life. This Pharisees plot death and destruction. Again, Mark highlighting how big the disparity is between the parties. It's the end of the controversy section, and it's led up to this, where now there's an active plot to destroy Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were so focused on what they couldn't do on the Sabbath that they forgot to enjoy the Sabbath. Now, I'm sure at some point there was good intent there. I, I, I really want to honor God. I really want to follow through. But they had gotten to this place where, where fear had more control than anything else. Imagine 
focusing on everything that we can't do in Western Washington at Christmas. Well, we can't uh, sunbathe. We, we, we probably can't go swimming in a local lake. That wouldn't be wise. Um, what else can't we do? We can't uh, light off fireworks like on the 4th of July. That's kind of a bummer. You know what we don't get to do on Christmas? We don't get to dress up and knock on our neighbor's doors and get candy. There's so many things we don't get to do on Christmas. I hate Christmas. Would that be a ridiculous attitude? Yes. No, we focus on the things that Christmas is. Baking Christmas cookies. and Buying presents for those that we love and watching their faces as they open them. Doing the Advent and thinking about the characteristics of Jesus Christ and, and what it meant that he came to earth singing Christmas carols, writing cards to people. The Pharisees are so focused on what not to do, they missed out on what they were supposed to do. Again, going back to the original command given, God was instituting Sabbath for our benefit. How many things has God asked us to do for our benefit? And we get so wrapped up in following the letter of the law that we miss out on worship. So as far as the Sabbath is concerned, as New Testament Christians, we're not, uh, we're not told to up- uphold the Sabbath. Um, that's an Old Testament concept. But the principles can still apply and I think are still really healthy. I think that the New Testament Christian can use a Sabbath day. For me, actually, it's Friday. I work really hard on Sundays. <laughs> it's not very restful. I usually go home and I just want to take a nap because you guys are exhausting. Oh, so <laughs> did I say that out loud? That was, that was supposed to be my inter- No, I li- <laughs> my Sabbath is Friday because that's the day that I protect and make sure that I don't go to work and I try not to do any meetings and, and I try to just rest. Slow down, rest, worship Jesus, depend on Jesus. Those are the things that I try to do. I'm like, God, I just want to slow down. I want to rest. I want to worship you. And I just want to depend on you. It's the frame of mind that I go into Fridays. I'm telling you what, Fridays are great. I don't go into Fridays going, oh, I better not. I better not. I better not. That wouldn't be restful at all. God has good things for us. And in his rules and guidelines, our life. Let's make sure that we live that life. We worship during it. And it's all in relationship with Jesus Christ so that we don't become legalists, but instead we become amazing worshipers.